Lord, this morning as we open your word, uh, I'd ask that you would make this passage clear to us. That you would take it from some weird events and dialogue from 2,000 years ago and that you'd bring it right into our midst today and that you would use it to challenge us to know you and experience you and live for you uh, the way you'd long for us to. So um, give us ears to hear, eyes to see. Give us hearts that are open and tender to being touched and changed by you as you speak today, Lord. Get me out of the way and I would ask that you would just speak this morning. And we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Luke chapter 11. If you have your Bible, pull it out. If you don't, there's a nice one placed in front of you in the pew rack. If you're using a pew rack Bible, we're going to be on page 844 today. We are continuing our journey through the Gospel of Luke. As we learn, Jesus is on the road with his disciples, and as they travel, he's teaching them, what does life look like when it's lived like me? What does life in the kingdom look like? What should that experience be? We're going to be starting this morning in verse 14, and we're going all the way to verse 28. I'm going to read the entire passage, so follow along with me, if you will. Jesus was driving out a demon that was mute. When the demon left, the man who had been made mute spoke, and the crowd was amazed. But some of them said, By Beelzebul, the prince of demons, he is driving out demons. Others tested him by asking for a sign from heaven. Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, Any kingdom divided against itself will be ruined, and a house divided against itself will fall. If Satan is divided against himself, how can his kingdom stand? I say this because you claim that I drive out demons by Beelzebul. Now if I drive out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your followers drive them out? So then they will be your judges. But if I drive out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own house, his possessions are safe. But when someone stronger attacks and overpowers him, he takes away the armor in which the man trusted and divides up his plunder. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. When an impure spirit comes out of a person, it goes through arid places seeking rest and does not find it. Then it says, I will return to the house I left. When it arrives, it finds the house swept clean and put in order. Then it goes and takes seven other spirits more wicked than itself, and they go in and live there. And the final condition of that person is worse than the first. As Jesus was saying these things, a woman in the crowd called out, Blessed is the mother who gave you birth and nursed you. He replied, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and obey it. I'll confess to you that this week I wrestled through this passage. I can't even tell you the numbers of countless times that I read through this passage. Translate, Pat Carl, have you been there before? You're like, what in the world am I going to preach this week? You know, my sermon's going all over the place. I'm reading, reading, reading. But the more I read, the more I began to discover that this isn't just sort of a, a weird, obscure passage about demons in the first century, but there are some very practical truths that I believe are specifically applicable, especially to 21st century American church Christians. We'll jump in. Luke begins our story today the way he often does by just giving us the facts. He jumps right in. He says, Jesus is driving out a demon. 
He says this demon is mute. It's a demon that has apparently rendered its victim unable to speak. And then we're told that when this happens, when the demon, the demon is driven out, the man who had been mute spoke. And it says, and the crowd was amazed. And the word amazed there is the Greek word thaumadzo. And it means that to marvel at, to be filled with wonder, to be overcome with awe. The, the crowd in this moment, as this, this demon is driven out of this man, is just absolutely blown away. And the question that we must ask here is why? Why is the crowd so utterly amazed at this one miracle? We are 11 chapters in, friends. Luke has recorded for us miracle after miracle after miracle. In the first 11 chapters of this gospel, Jesus has done things that will absolutely blow your hair back. He has done miracles far more impressive than this. And plus, he's already driven out a number of demons. But it seems in this case, in this moment, the crowd, perhaps more than any other moment up to this point, is absolutely astounded at what Jesus does here. Why? Well, to really understand why they are so amazed, we have to kind of get inside their minds. We have to get inside um, the perspective of somebody in the first century. We have to put ourselves in the crowd. And when we do that, we find out this. In the first century, the way they understood exorcism, the driving out of demons, was that if you wanted to drive a demon out of a person, the very first thing you would need to do is to get the name of of the demon. This is like exorcism class 101. You guys have all had it, right? The first thing you do when driving a demon out of a person is you get the name of a person. It was thought that once you had the name of a demon, it was sort of like the handle. It was sort of the hook you could use. And now, with that name, you could exercise authority. and You could command that demon and you could pull that demon out of a person. That's what they all thought and believed. Now, the problem in this case is... It's pretty tough to get the name of a demon when the demon is mute and has rendered the person mute. This guy can't talk. You can't get the name. This is why all first century people believed that it was darn near impossible, maybe even undoable, to cast out a demon that caused muteness in somebody. So Jesus is now, apparently, up against his greatest challenge yet. And he attacks the situation. He cannot get the name of this demon. And yet, it seems fairly easily, he drives the demon out of this man. You want to know why the crowd is blown away by this miracle, why they marvel in this moment? It's because Jesus has just now demonstrated that he has power even over demons who will not give up their name. So Luke, in these opening sentences, has set the scene for us here. And what he's telling us is this. He's saying, this is a story. This is a passage. What I'm about to tell you is about the undeniable, unbelievable, unparalleled by anything you have ever seen before in your life, power of Jesus. That's the subject that we're dealing with here. And, and, and the question that starts to rise up in this passage is... If Jesus comes and he truly has this kind of power and if he truly offers healing and restoring and life transforming power, 
power that not even the most obstinate forces of Satan can resist, then why do so many people in this world not experience the healing and deliverance that he comes to bring? Why, if Jesus can even command Satan on this level, are so many people, so many people even in the church, so many people that even name the name of Christ, not healed, not delivered, not restored more fully, because obviously Jesus has the power to do it. How does Jesus offer this level of power and authority to his people. How does that, that transaction take place? How does he offer this restoring power to you and me? And then, that's what we're going to ask, that's the first question we're going to ask today. And then we're going to talk about four responses to Jesus' offer. This offer that he, that he gives his people. Um, this offer of power and deliverance and hope and healing. So first, first question. What does Jesus come to offer? What does Jesus come to offer? Well, this one's easy, isn't it? Y'all, y'all how many of you, most of you were in Sunday school, right? What does Jesus come to offer? Some of you are bold and some of you are like, I'm not answering this question. I think it's a trick question. Oh yeah, Jesus comes to offer lots of things. He offers grace and forgiveness and salvation and a right relationship with God and power over sin and death and joy and peace and hope and transformation and eternal security. He offers a whole smorgasbord of stuff. But he doesn't offer those things independently, does he? Actually, Jesus really comes to offer one thing. It's called the gospel. It's the good news of Jesus. And we need to understand, before we dive into this passage, what is the gospel that Jesus comes to offer? Because we, if we understand the gospel that Jesus offers, if we understand how Jesus wants to deliver this life healing, redemptive, restorative power that he has, if we understand how he wants to offer that to us, then we will understand why people respond the way they respond. But first, we have to understand the gospel that Jesus comes to preach. And here's, the, here's, the, here's Jesus' gospel. Jesus' gospel is not, believe in me and you can go to heaven someday. That's not, that's not the gospel that Jesus come to preach, comes to preach. In fact, Jesus never even says that. Never, not once. It doesn't mean that you don't go to heaven if you believe in Jesus. It just means that's not the gospel that he offers. The gospel Jesus offers is this. The kingdom of God is now available to you in me. The kingdom of God is now available to you in me. And the kingdom of God is really just this. We've talked about this before, but it is so central to understanding the message and ministry of Jesus. It's the dome in which God is king. It's the sphere in which God's will and ways are perfectly manifest. It's it's the realm in which God rules and calls the shots and is fully in charge. Friends, is this world the kingdom of God right now? Friends, I, I know we sing songs about it, like this is my father's world. And in some ways it sort of is. He created this world and he does have power. But right now he is not ruling here. In fact, the Bible says time and time again, there's another force that's ruling here. There are evil forces that are ruling here. Now, Jesus comes to bring the kingdom, to bring the ruling power of God. And now little pockets, little domes where where God is ruling are popping up all over the place, primarily in lives of people and as they gather together in communities. And there are little pockets where, where... God's kingdom is established, and his will and ways are prevailing. But overall, this is enemy territory. Satan rules here. Just turn on the news. 
Just look at your life. Just take a look around our city at the devastation and injustice and destruction that people are experiencing. This is enemy territory. But the gospel says this. Jesus says, guess what? I can take you out of this dark, cruel, Satan-occupied and ruled world and for, very, for free... You don't have to earn it. You don't have to do anything. You don't have to be a good enough person. You don't have to be smart enough, nice enough. People don't even have to like you. Um, for free, because of Christ's death and resurrection, what has previously prevented you from entering the king's dome, the dome where, where God is king, where Jesus rules and is Lord, now the kingdom is available to you for free. That's the good news. That's the gospel. For free, God can now be your king again. God can now rule your life again. And, and, and. When God is king again in your life, and when God is, and Jesus is Lord again in the sphere of your world, then guess what comes with that? When Jesus is king, then, then there's transformation and grace and forgiveness and salvation and power over sin and death and joy and peace and hope and eternal security. You see, we talk about the gospel, and the gospel is Jesus comes to put us in right relationship with God again. Right? But what is the right relationship for a human being to have with God? To be in right relationship with God means, guess what? He's God and you're not. It means he's king and Lord and ruling and calling the shots and you are, well, yeah, obeying, right? But not works too. Right, so, so that's the gospel. The good news is the kingdom is now available to you. And when you receive that gospel, when you receive that kingdom, when you step into that realm and submit yourself to, to the lordship of Jesus and the kingship of God, now your life starts to align and you get all the benefits of that. And guess what? Those benefits, they extend on into eternity. We call that... You're right on this one. It's not a trick question. We call that heaven. Are you with me at all, church? Yeah, the extended eternal rule and reign of God is called heaven. And in heaven, the kingdom will expand to all of creation, right? And then God's will and ways will pervade over all the earth. And there will be a new heaven and a new earth. And everything will be the way God wants it to be. And he will be ruling. Jesus says, I have come to offer you a little slice of heaven in your world, in your life, right now. Now, and then not only that, but then you can be a kingdom advancer, one who offers that same slice of God's rule and reign and Jesus' lordship to other people. So that's the gospel. That's what Jesus offers. And when you receive that gospel in Christ, now, now, the restoring amazing power over the forces of darkness that Jesus demonstrates with this mute man are now available to you. So that's what Jesus comes to offer. Paul talks about this very thing in Colossians. He talks about Jesus and he says this way. This is Paul talking about that same gospel, that same good news. He says, for he, that's Jesus, has rescued us from the dominion of darkness. The sphere where Satan rules and darkness pervades. And he has brought us into what? The kingdom of the son he loves. The kingdom where Jesus is Lord in whom we have redemption and forgiveness of sins. Because when Jesus is Lord, there's redemption and forgiveness of sins because Jesus has overcome death and destruction, right? Okay, there it is. So that's what Jesus comes to offer. He offers the kingdom. And now we have four responses in this passage to Jesus coming to offer the kingdom. How do people respond when Jesus says, God can be king in your life and he can be king in your life for free? 
Response number one, threatened rejection. But some of them said, by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, he is driving out demons. So Jesus performs this, this exorcism and then the rumors and the whispers and the accusations start. His power comes from Beelzebul. That's how he's able to pull all this stuff off. And, and by the way, just a quick word about this name Beelzebul. Because my wife was telling me like just a couple weeks ago, how am I supposed to, I think her question was something like, how am I supposed to take the devil seriously when his name's Beelzebul? I mean, like, it doesn't sound scary. Let's just call him something else, you know. But let me, this name Beelzebul is actually two words um, stuck together. The word Beel comes from the ancient pagan word for Lord. And Zebul is connected to the word for flies. So this is Lord of the flies. And this is uh, sort of an old Canaanite god that the Jews said, hey, this god is so wretched and wicked, we're going to adopt that name and we're going to use that name for Satan. He is the Lord of the flies. And by the way, what is the Lord of the flies? What is it that lords flies and that sort of attracts them and that they're drawn to? It's a word I shouldn't say in church. But maybe I can get away with a, a different translation. It's poo. Lord of the flies is poo. And so this is just an, an Old Testament Jewish title for Satan that reflects his gross, decrepit, rotten, destructive nature. Right? This is like the worst. Satan, this is what Satan does. He just brings poo all over the earth. And that's a fairly loose translation, but that's pretty close. Um, that's what they're saying. They're saying, Jesus, he's from Satan. And so Jesus, he kind of responds and he refutes their argument fairly quickly. And I'm not going to spend a lot of time here, but he says, that's just illogical. It makes no sense. If Satan battles himself, if Satan were to attack himself the way you have seen me time and time again attack Satan, then Satan would fall. He'd be done for. And let me ask this question. Um, so these people, I mean, we all know Jesus, right? We've all talked about Jesus. He's what? He's loving, he's kind, he's gracious, he's merciful. I mean, he loves me, this I know, the Bible tells me so. And then he shows up on the scene, and he offers the good news, the gospel, and he demonstrates it in the lives of people. And then, they, and then, then what do they say? They say, You're Satan! And it's kind of like, what? Do they know the same Jesus that I know? Let me tell you why they respond this way. You see, if you don't understand the gospel the right way, this is a very strange response. If Jesus just shows up and says, hey, I'm handing out free tickets to paradise, who wants one? They would never say, you're Satan. No one crucifies someone who's just handing out golden tickets to Willy Wonka's chocolate factory for free. That's not, that's not what happens to those people. But when someone shows up and says, guess what? I should rule and reign your life. That's a little more offensive. I should call the shots. My agendas should be priority number one. Guess what? What you think, what you want, it is second fiddle to what I think and what I want. Let me rule and reign your life because I am the Lord of lords and King of kings. Now all of a sudden, put yourself in the position of someone whose agenda, whose thought process, whose power and privilege runs contrary to the message of Jesus. And now all of a sudden when Jesus comes and says, I should rule, I should reign, I am king, your power, your life, your privilege, your pleasure has been threatened. And that's when people reject Jesus. People don't reject Jesus because he's such a nice guy. People reject Jesus because he wants to be their Lord. You see, Jesus comes in and says, 
I want to be king in your life. I want to be Lord in your life. That means this. I want to determine how you act and how you think and how you talk and how you spend your time and how you spend your money and how you talk about people and how you respond to people that are your enemies. Jesus says, I'm now calling the shots, high school kids, and how you conduct yourself in dating relationships. How's that sound? I'm talking to you men about how you should treat women. I'm talking to you ladies about how you should respect your husbands. I'm talking to, um, shoot, I'm even going to be in charge of how you use your gifts and talents in this world. You see, and, and, and for some reason, there's something in me and there's something in you. It's called sin. It doesn't like to be controlled. We like to be controlled. We like to call our own shots. And when Jesus comes in and says, I'm calling the shots, and it's going to radically change your life, and it's going to radically change who you are and how you think and how you act, and all of a sudden, people get threatened. And that's where they start shouting, crucify him. Threatened rejection. This guy is Satan because there's no way they can let him be king. There's no way they can let him be Lord. They have too much to lose. Second response. Threatened rejection is the first one. Prolonged indecision is is response number two to Jesus coming on the scene and saying, the kingdom is at hand. Let me be king in your life. Others tested him, it says, by asking for a sign from heaven. Now, the Greek word that says by asking for... It's actually a a verb that is in the imperfect tense, and this means that it's sort of a continual asking for. Another, probably the best way to translate this verse is, others kept on asking him for a sign from heaven. And what Luke is trying to tell us here is this is a running request for proof that will never be satisfied. This is like someone who's standing on the edge of faith, who's standing on the edge of receiving Jesus' invitation, of stepping into the king's dome, the realm where God is king and Jesus is Lord. And, but, they, but they can't quite make that leap. They can't quite take that step into that place where Jesus is Lord. And they say, you know what? I just need a little more proof. I need to see one more miracle. I have one more question. Just one more doubt. But what about this? What about that? And they live in this place of prolonged indecision. They're right there. That's what the crowds say. Well, it all looks pretty good. So far it's adding up. But you know what? Maybe we need a sign from heaven. And what they mean by that is they want them to start to like rearrange the stars or something. One final piece of proof. And you know, we went hiking a couple weeks ago in the gorge, my wife and I, and we did probably the best trail I've done since I've been here. It was the trail up Eagle Creek in the gorge. Have you been that one? By Punchbowl Falls? We went all the way up to the top by Tunnel Falls and up to Twisted Falls. And you're hiking the entire time along this beautiful Oregon rushing river. The water is crystal clear. And in various places it pools into these giant pools and there's waterfalls. And this one spot, we kind of hiked down by the river, and there's about a 35-foot cliff. And all these college kids were, you know, like idiots jumping off this cliff. And I thought, well, I'm pretty close to college age, so I should probably do it too. Um, And so you look at this cliff, and you think, oh, it's not that high. And then you climb up, climb up, climb up. And once you get up there, and you're looking down at the water, you're thinking, doggone it, if my wife wasn't here, I'd totally wimp out. Um, But she watched me climb up here, and there's no way I'm climbing down now. But there's this young college girl up there, and she was standing up there when when we first arrived. And she stood on the edge. And she just kept looking. And her friends were like doing like the, do it, one, two, three. And I'd count her down and all the stuff. And she'd be like, ah. And then, oh, you know, and then she'd back up and go, you go, you go. And then she'd like let the people behind her go. And then a couple more people would go. And she'd be like, okay, okay. And she'd get up and she'd go, now, you know, why don't you guys go? I'm going to wait a few more minutes. And she did this for probably a good 20, 30 minutes. I mean, I'm up there. I jumped and then she's still up there. She just couldn't get herself to make that leap of faith. 
that one last, I mean, she could get all the way up the cliff, she could climb all the way up there, pull herself up the rope, get to the edge, but she could not make that leap. So many people respond to the gospel of Jesus in just this way. They get so close. They hear about Jesus. They hear about the good news. They hear about him reigning and ruling in their life. And they know what that means for them. They know what that means for their eternity. They know what that means for their existence. They know what that means for their joy and peace and hope. And they've watched other people's lives be transformed by Jesus. But they just can't make that leap. They just can't give up that control and say, I'm no longer God. I'm no longer Lord. I'm no longer calling the shots. Jesus, it's you. And they live in this place of prolonged Indecision, And we see that in the crowds. And Jesus warns against that. So these are the two responses we see from the people. And now we have this third response. And this is a response that we don't actually see in the crowds, but it's a response that Jesus brings up and, and warns against. And this is the one, friends, I believe is most applicable to the people sitting in this room. This is the one that is most Dangerous to 21st century American church-going Christians. Here's what Jesus says. He says, If I drive out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your followers drive them out? So then they will be your judges. But if I drive out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. And, and there's a little phrase right there in the middle of verse 20. Finger of God. It's the most important phrase in this passage. It's sort of the linchpin upon which everything else hinges. And it tells us exactly what Jesus is getting at here. It's very important. You see, when Jesus uses this phrase, all of a sudden, every single person in the crowd knows exactly what he's talking about. They all know exactly what he's referring to. And they know exactly the point he is making. This phrase shows up only a few times in the Bible. And the place Jesus references is when it's used in Exodus chapter 8. Let me give you a little context. This is right in the middle of the Exodus story, when Moses is sent back to Egypt to deliver God's people, to free them from, from oppression and devastation and destruction and slavery. And Moses goes back, and is he real pumped to go? No, he's not real pumped to go. But God says, guess what? I'll be with you. I'll go with you. And here, have this staff. And this staff I'm going to use. You and Aaron can use this staff and you can do these amazing miracles that will display the power of God and show all the people that you have come with my authority and my power. And I will use this staff and the miracles it produces to deliver my people from Egypt, right? So Moses goes back and he's got his staff and he's scared to death. But he goes before Pharaoh with Aaron and the first thing God tells him to do is he says, throw the staff down. He does. And what's that? what happens? You guys all have seen the cartoon movie, right? It turns into a snake. Oh, God's doing it. He's proving that I have the power of God. And then what happens? Pharaoh summoned, it says in Exodus 7, the wise men and sorcerers and the Egyptian magicians also. And they did the same thing by their secret arts. Darn it. Those stinking Egyptian musicians, magicians, one of those. So then the next thing God says, okay, we'll move on to the plagues. And there's the first plague is the plague of blood. And so they stretch out the, the staff over the Nile River, and the entire Nile River turns to blood. And the fish all die, and it's like, oh, you better listen up, because God's doing some gnarly stuff. But the Egyptian magician, magicians, 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 I can't say that word today. I did the same thing in first service. In Exodus 7 did the same things by their secret arts. So now they're turning water into blood too. 
They're using hocus-pocus magic to mimic the miracles of God. And it's like, anything you can do, we can do better. That proves nothing. So we go on to plague number three. Who knows what plague number three is? Frogs. Nice job, high school kids. Um, It's the frogs. It's like frogs everywhere. Which doesn't sound that bad to me. I think my kids would be super pumped. Um, But... I guess it was a kind of a bummer, like frogs everywhere. There's frogs everywhere. And, and again, the Egyptian magicians produce frogs as well. So it's like, this isn't proving the power of God at all. Everything we do, they can do. And then finally, finally we get to plague number four. And in plague number four, God says, when you stretch out your, your staff, the dust of Egypt will turn to gnats. There's a lot of dust in Egypt. It says, but when the magicians tried to produce gnats by their secret arts, they could not. Since the gnats were on people and animals everywhere, the magicians said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hard and he would not listen, just as the Lord had said. This is the finger of God. This is power. This is might. This is spiritual force and deliverance that that cannot be mimicked in this world, friends. And what Jesus is trying to say when he references this moment and he uses it in our passage today, he's saying this. He's saying, guess what, friends? There are a a lot of cheap imitations of deliverance out there, but I am the one who comes with the true power of God. I am the one who has the actual legitimate power to overcome the strong man of this world. And then he tells this story. This is where the warning comes. Jesus is warning us of this third possible response to his kingdom being offered. He says, when an impure spirit comes out of a person, it goes through arid places seeking rest and it does not find it. You see, demons are always looking for the darkest, most desolate least life-giving places in the world, but they are only at home when they find the soul of a human being. And so it goes through this arid, waterless place, and then it says, I will return to the house I left. When it arrives, it finds the house swept clean and put in order. And the house here is just a uh, sort of an image for a a human um, soul. Then it goes, so it comes back, and it finds that the house is all cleaned up. Things are all good. Things look clean and orderly and tidy. Then it goes and takes seven other spirits more wicked than itself and they go in and live there. And the final condition of that person is worse than the first. You see, Jesus says, sometimes people are threatened and they reject me. Sometimes people just live in this this phase of prolonged indecision. But other people, other people, they think they're leaping into the kingdom. They think they're receiving the gospel. But in actuality, they are just settling for a counterfeit. You see, Jesus says, you can give your something, you can give yourself to something that may appear to produce transformation in you, that may appear to clean your life up and make your life look at least externally like the kingdom has come into it. But, the truth of the matter is this, you have only embraced imitation transformation. And that's the third response. Imitation transformation. You see, here's the truth, friends. And this is what we need to hear today. Because I think so many Christians are living in this place. They're wondering why they're not experiencing the deep, rich, um, inside-out transformation of God in their lives. It's because they haven't actually embraced the real gospel. They haven't actually embraced Jesus as, as Lord. We have settled for imitation transformation. Because there's a lot of forces out there in this world that can clean up your life. 
Jesus isn't the only force in this world that can make your life look, look good and clean and nice and orderly. The American dream can do that, friends. There are other forces that if you give yourself to them, if you make them Lord, if they are the, the primary driving force of your life, if they're actually ruling and reigning and directing your life, they can make your life look pretty good. In fact, Jesus says this a lot in the Gospels. He says, people that have given themselves over to a God, a Lord, a, a ruling and reigning force that destroys their life, that makes their life like look wretched and miserable, let's just say like heroin. He says, people that have given themselves over to heroin, they're actually closer to the kingdom than people that have given themselves over to moralism. Because when, you're, when heroin's your God, you know you're in big trouble. You know, you know you're, you're hurting. You know you need help. But when moralism is your God, here's the problem. You think you're good. You think you're all right. Let me give you some examples of some things that people will sort of let rule and reign, be king, lord in their life, and it'll produce an external picture that looks a whole lot like the kingdom. Pride. Reputation. Popularity. Acceptance. You see, sometimes what we like to do in church is we like to put a Jesus sticker on it, but the, but the reality is, the driving force in our life, this, this happens to me sometimes, friends, I'll just confess it to you, is I'm really driven by what other people think of me, by my reputation being good. And because I'm so concerned about my reputation and what people think of me, it makes me real nice, it makes me real religious, it makes me act all sweet and kind. It makes me keep my finances in order. It keeps me out. Of, it keeps me away from doing at least really overt public sins. It keeps the exterior of my life looking like a whole lot like a Christ follower, like a whole, a whole lot like someone who actually has Jesus as Lord. But if you peel away the layers, if you go a little deeper, the thing that's ruling and reigning in me, it is not good at all. And that's why Jesus says, whoever is not with me is against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. Because what he's saying is, unless I am king, unless I am Lord of my life, or I'm Lord of your life, then the thing that's in you, even if it's producing stuff that may look good, it is actually of the devil. And ultimately, the strong forces of this world will come in and overpower it, and it will destroy you, and it will destroy people you love. Success, wealth, achievement. You know, maybe your dad told you your entire growing up that you wouldn't amount to much. And the thing that's driving you, the thing that's just pushing your life forward and, and ruling all the decisions that you make is you're going to prove them wrong. You're going to be successful. You're going to make a whole lot of money. A whole lot of people are going to like you and respect you and look up to you because you're going to prove dad wrong. And that, that makes your life look real good. That actually does make you successful. But that very thing you've given over lordship to and you've let rule you will actually destroy you. It's actually nothing like letting Jesus be Lord. What about fear or safety or security? Some of us, we've just given ourselves to that. And all the decisions we make come out of this, this deep internal place where we want to be safe, we want to feel secure because maybe we grew up in an environment where we didn't feel safe or secure. We want to feel um, that, that security and so... That keeps us out of a whole lot of trouble. We don't make bad decisions. We don't do real risky things. And so we live this sort of very placid life. But that is nothing like living life in the kingdom. Or, or the worst one of all, and I've already referenced it a bit, religion. You make religion the Lord of your life. You say moralism or legalism is king. And I'll tell you what, your life looks real clean. Your life looks real good. People may even respect you. They'll put you in church leadership. 
But guess what? Peel away the layers. That is nothing like making Jesus Lord or King of your life. Jesus, that's why Jesus tells the Pharisees they're like whitewashed tombs. On the outside, they look so clean and nice and perfect and religious and tidy. But on the inside, it's all a sham. And it's all going to come crumbling down. Whoever is not with me is against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. Friends, have you yielded your life to a force, to a king, to a lord that may produce... Externally, at least for a little while, some results that look okay. But actually, the thing that's ruling you is nothing like Jesus at all. It doesn't love you. It doesn't care for you. And to tell you the truth, when times get real tough, it is not strong enough to sustain you. Jesus says, do not be fooled, Christ followers. Don't let something rule your life with a Jesus sticker on it because that is not the kingdom. That is not the kingdom. That is not the right response to the free gift of God ruling and reigning your life through the death and resurrection of Jesus that's offered. That is not the same. And that leads us to the fourth and final response to Jesus' offer of the kingdom, and it's the right response, surrendered control. At the very end of this passage, this woman speaks up and just says, blessed is the mother who gave you birth and nursed you. That's just her way of saying, like, Thank God for you. Thank God for your message. And Jesus clarifies, you know, it's not enough just to say the words, but what Jesus is looking for are those who hear the word of God and obey it. Those who will take that leap into that kingdom. Those who will not settle for imitation transformation. Those who will say, I want Jesus to rule and reign and be Lord of every single area of my life. Friends, the first question is this. Is Jesus the Lord of your life overall? Is he calling the shots? Is he in charge? Is he ruling, reigning? Is his kingdom active over you? If the answer to that is yes, then the second question is, where are the places in your life? Because our lives are kind of like a honeycomb. We have all these little sections. Where are the places in your life where you're holding out? Because at least for me, how this works is, man, there's a lot of places in my life where it's like, Jesus is Lord there, Jesus is Lord there, he's ruling there, he's calling the shots there. But there's a couple places... Where I like to keep my hands on the wheel. Where I like to call the shots for myself. Or I even like to let some other things call the shots. Those are places of struggle, right? Where are the places where you need to say, God, I haven't let you be Lord here enough. Because it hurts a little bit. And it's going to strip some things down for me. And it's going to take some work and some pain. But I need to let you be Lord. You see, this morning we're going to celebrate baptism. We had four people we get baptized in the first service. I think we have five at this service. We're going to do it in just a minute. And this is exactly what baptism is. Baptism isn't just, I want, a, I want a, a nice life with Jesus. Baptism isn't just, I'm going to heaven someday. Baptism is this. Baptism is, I am dying. I am killing this idea that I can be God of my own life, that I can save myself. I am killing that notion and I am raising to new life, a new life in the kingdom where Jesus is Lord and God is King and He's calling the shots of my life because I want the real deal power and transformation and it only comes through Him. That's baptism. That's what Paul says. Listen to these words, one of my favorite verses in all of Scripture. I have been crucified with Christ. 
The fact that I'm king, it's dead. It's dead in him. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. He is Lord of me. And then he says this, the life I now live in the body. You see, for Jesus and for Paul and the early church, this was always about something that starts now. It's not someday Jesus will be king in heaven when everything is made right. That certainly is true. But it's the life I live in the body now. The rule starts today. I live by faith in the Son of God. I trust Him with my life. He's calling the shots. Who loved me and gave Himself up for me. we got some folks today who are going to be crucified with Christ, who are going to declare, Jesus is my Lord. This is a great day for a church family. Because guess what, friends? Their declaration should encourage your declaration. If you've already been baptized, you should be thinking, I know that feeling, I know that call, I know that Jesus, and I want to recommit to the fact that he is Lord for me again today too. If you're here today, you haven't been baptized, you haven't made that declaration, you haven't given your life, you haven't stepped, you haven't leapt off that cliff into the kingdom, maybe you're here today and you've been settling for imitation transformation, today is the day to fix that, today is the day to declare it, today is the day to say, God, I want in the kingdom, I want you to be Lord, I'm tired of standing on the sideline, I'm tired of rejecting you, I'm tired of selling for something that has no power and just a cheap imitation, I want in the kingdom, God be king, rule my life. That offer, it stands today, the same way it was offered 2,000 years ago. Jesus still comes to people. He comes to our world and he says, the offer still stands. It's free. God can be king in your life for free. He can rule your life and you don't even have to earn it or pay for it in any way. You see these waters right here? There's no charge for them. As long as you'll give your life, as long as you'll say he is Lord, He'll take you. I'm going to ask our friends who are being baptized today to come to the back. I'm going to ask our Spanish-speaking congregation that's going to come join us to come in. we got some, some pews for you up here. Don't be bashful. I'm going to pray. Um, they're going to move while I pray. Pray with me, and we're going to celebrate baptism together today. Father, this morning... God, I know I'm preachy today. I just feel like I'm preachy. I just beg you, though, Lord, that you would get this idea through our brains. That there's life and peace and power and hope and joy when we make you Lord. Invade our lives, Lord. Come in, grab a hold, take the wheel in the places that we're being stubborn. I pray that for us as a church. I pray that for us as individuals. I pray that for myself as a pastor, God. We need you. We love you. Thank you for these friends who are declaring your lordship today. We stand with them and we celebrate with them. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.